Hello. Thanks for being here tonight. Uh, before we jump into singing and studying God's Word, let me uh, just remind you of a few things that are going on around Lots here. Lots of things going on tonight. Let's just uh, turn our attention to God and focus on who He is, what He's done. As we sing, especially this first song, but all the songs that we're singing, I encourage you to uh, really pay attention to the words and what you're, what you're singing and what you're saying. And tonight we're going to start with an opportunity to just remind ourselves of what we believe in, that we believe in God our Father, we believe in Christ the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit, our God, three in one. If you're able, I invite you to stand and let's worship together.
Forever, Lord, forever I am yours. Forever, Lord, forever I am yours. 
Heart and lead me in your love to those on 
Thank you that we are able to worship you and to magnify your name and to give you honor and glory that's due your name. We've been worshiping God, who he is, declaring our praise and worship to him. I invite you to use this last song as we head into our study in the word. Use it as your prayer this evening a thousand times I've failed still your mercy remains should I stumble again still I'm caught in your grace everlasting your light will shine when all else fades never ending your glory goes beyond
transforming grace, your mercy, and your love. And we worship you and we praise you from the inside out tonight. Teach us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. Tonight we will do the whole book, all three chapters. And then pick up in First Timothy starting next week. A couple of reminders if you're still interested in going to Israel, there is space available. I checked with the travel company, and we have 23 signed up right now. Um, but we're, we're kind of coming down to the wire, so it would be good to get your deposits in and, and get signed up with that. And really, I uh, really want to encourage you, um, whether you're here or you're talking with people or, or watching online, that uh, tomorrow night we um, Harvest Jam is really going to be different this year. And so we're going to gather everybody together and and work out what Harvest Fair is going to look like, and really try to uh, go after and connect with the kids that were here during VBS. And so if you're a VBS worker, we really would like to have you 
participate in the, in the Harvest Fair um, because the hopes are that we're going to invite those kids from VBS back and they're going to look at you and say, hey, you were my teacher or you were my rec person or, or craft person or snack person and reconnect with those kids and follow up with the work that, um, that got started over this summer. Tonight we're going to pick up here in Second Thessalonians. Have you ever had a time or, or maybe a condition in your, in your life where you had a fear or anxiety and it, you just couldn't seem to shake it? Where it just kind of hung on and, and you were encouraged, but you know, it, it just really, it, it just still stuck with you. That's kind of like what's going on here in the church of, of Thessalonica. The Thessalonians were in this, this condition where they were still somewhat fearful and, and not really understanding the day of the Lord. And, and it was all in light of their suffering. Many times people will say, well, you become a Christian and everything in your life will become perfect. Is that true? No, it doesn't work that way. And then, so when things aren't perfect and you're suffering and bad things are happening, you're going, okay, God, why? What happened? What did I do wrong? And all of these things and trying to wrestle with this. And, and God, am I being punished? Because, you know, I've, I've learned so much in the Bible about divine retribution. If bad things are happening, you must be trying to get even with me. Well, that's not necessarily the case either. The world we live in is a corrupt world, and it's falling apart, isn't it? We think about all the bad things that are happening, and it's just becoming worse and worse. It's not getting better. The only thing that's going to get better is when Jesus comes back and takes us home and, and gets us out of here. So we, we're looking to this second letter of Thessalonians as Paul is writing, and he's responding about a, a, an ongoing message that he's hearing that this church is still anxious about the whole condition of the day of the Lord and their suffering. And we know that Paul's writing this because he starts out in one one and he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And then at the end of the letter, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting, note, with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter, this is the way I write. Many times Paul would dictate to a scribe who would write the letters for him, but he says, I'm writing this with my own hand within this. He was really wanting to connect with this church personally. He didn't get to spend a lot of time with them. We know that he probably wrote this from Athens or Corinth, more likely from Corinth in, in writing back. Um, we know that the first letter of Thessalonians was about 50 to, to early 51 A.D. This is a quick follow-up in 51 to 52 A.D. Timothy would have most likely been the guy to deliver this letter. And he wrote it to encourage them um, because they were not at rest. The suffering was going on. The Judaizers were going on. Remember, Christianity is brand new in this region, seen as a cult by the Jews and even by the Greeks within this. And so there was some great persecution that was going on in the church. And he wanted the believers to keep looking forward for the rescue. What happens if you give up hope? When you give up hope, you give up living. And you give up on life. And he wanted these guys to look forward to the rescue that Jesus offers. And not to come up short because of the suffering, because of the difficulties, because of the things that were going on. And life can be overwhelming at times. Within this, Paul was saying, I'm not going to promise you peace out of the situation. But God brings peace in the midst of the situation. 
And so you get, a, you get a unique peace that guards your heart and your mind that will garrison your thoughts and your activities within this. And he wanted the believers to keep looking for this rescue, the peace of knowing a couple of things. One, the peace of knowing that God has chosen you before the foundations of the world. The peace of knowing that you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that your life is in Christ. The peace of knowing that the one whom he has chosen, the one whom he has redeemed, he will keep through the hardships and through the difficulties, through this world, and bring you into his eternal kingdom within this. And so it's not necessarily a peace from conflict, it's a peace in conflict. To be able to have this peace that guards you and this hope. Now, there's a couple of things that Paul has ventured into from his last letter in 1 Thessalonians. And, in, and it rolls over into 2 Thessalonians. Because of their concern about this day of the Lord and their, their misunderstanding about the timeline, he began this, what we would call an eschatological narrative. He started in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, about the rapture of the church. And then he says, now following this rapture of the church, we have this day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. And then he speaks of, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 6 through 10, divine retribution, which is really this wrath of God that comes as a result of this, and kind of a timeline that gives some markers, some, some legitimate markers that you can measure within the tribulation so that you are not disturbed by the world events. If you spend your time looking at the news and looking at the world conditions and not, not studying your Bible, you're going to get messed up in the head. It's going gonna, it's gonna to mess with you. And so what Paul's bringing them back to is the teachings that he's given them and reminding them. And so he's going to lay out a sequence of events in 2 Thessalonians that is going to bring about some of the things that understanding that the first letter started a discussion with so that you'll know. Some, some landmarks, for example. One of the landmarks that is going to tell you that it will cover is that lawlessness is already rampant, but it's limited. It's active now. Second, that there's going to be an apostasy that's going to take place before the lawless one is revealed. And the lawless one will take a, his place in the temple of God and declare himself as being God. Yet there has to be a removal of a restrainer that's restraining the lawless one that is in that. And we're going to unpack all of that in this passage that's here. Keep in mind, Paul is not trying to write an extensive timeline of eschatology. What he's trying to write and to give them is encouragement and some markers to know, yes, the day of the Lord has not come. Yes, you are suffering, but there are things that are going to be far worse after you're gone. And so... You need to be at rest with this and know something that those that are bringing persecution upon you are going to get theirs. So hang on. Don't worry about it. That Just stay faithful and keep working through it. So we're going to work through all three chapters tonight. They're rather short chapters. And we're going to walk through them. And we start with Paul's greeting and thanksgiving and prayer. In verses 1 through 12, 
He says this, Paul and Silvanus Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pay attention to that because verse 2 and chapter 3 uh, verse 17 creates what's called an inclusio. It's a bracket. You see grace and peace at both ends. That's what Paul is all about, bringing grace and peace. Verse 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as this is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and your love for one another, or for each one of you towards one another, grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for, just for God to repay with affliction those who afflicted you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will repay the penalty, or these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith within the power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what do we see here in chapter 1? Paul's words of encouragement that are there. He starts out with his greeting. He says, I, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we're writing to you. Notice the inclusive we in verse 3. Paul is not just himself writing, but he's got Silas and Timothy that's with him, and we are wishing this to you. Remember, Paul never really operated as an island. He was a team member. He was a leader of a team. But within his team membership, he was having these people that were working with him, and he's writing to this church. He, he is giving thanks to them. He, he, he's amazed. Why? Because since the first letter and since the first time of meeting him, their faith is growing and their love for one another is growing. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought they were suffering. Yes, they were suffering, but they were experiencing spiritual growth through the suffering. We look at suffering as being a bad thing. Suffering is a good thing. And you say, well, that's kind of weird. It's good because it puts pressure on us and purifies our life. He's writing to the church, ecclesia, the ones that are called out. Not just one congregation, but this would have been a circuit letter that would have gone out to this, all the home fellowships that are all in this area. The, all the huddles that are going on. And what Paul wanted him to do was, first and foremost, reflect on God's grace and peace. How do you make it through suffering? You make it through suffering not by fixating yourself on the suffering, but fixing your eyes on Jesus and the grace and peace that God has afforded to you. Having your vertical 
focus on Christ and all that He has given you. If you take your eyes off of Christ and you put them on your trials, your tribulations, your suffering, you're going to become depressed. You're going to become sad. You're going to become overwhelmed. You're going to want to quit. But if you focus on what God has done in His grace that provides peace, you're going to be an overcomer. And Paul often invokes this this grace, and they need it now because in their mind, they're overwhelmed. They think the day of the Lord's come. They're overwhelmed. He says, no, stop. He wants to invoke this peace. Isaiah chapter 26, 2 through 4 is the song of Isaiah, and it resonates this, this thought. In Isaiah 26, 2 to 4, it says this, Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter in. The one that remains faithful, the steadfast of mind. Note, you will keep in what kind of peace? Perfect peace. Why? Because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. It's all about focus. When you lose focus, you, you get off kilter and out of balance. This grace and peace comes from God the Father. And it's important to understand, it says from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. To be able to be in there. It's peace with God and, it, and it's peace from God through Jesus. He's that conduit of peace. And Paul gives this thanksgiving prayer. In verses 3 and 4 he says, I want to give thanks to you, brethren. It's only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. It's this growing faith. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be what? Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Great. Trials make me perfect. It's not a sense of, perfection, but it's a, a sense of completion. Because trials will test your faith and they'll, trust, they'll, they'll test what you trust in. And so what it does is it, is it puts your faith through this, this kiln, this, this tempered heat that, that causes you to say, do I really, what do I really believe? When you come down to, I really believe in God, then you have that complete faith. If I believe in God and, or if I believe in this and then I try to add God to it, it's not a complete faith. And so you're going to be unstable in all your ways within this. One of the, the key elements that we see as a, a perfect or a complete faith is perseverance. A complete faith means that you are going to hang on and persevere, but it's not a white knuckling kind of perseverance. It's a, I have nowhere else to go but to God, perseverance. It's the only road that I have. I removed all my options and I'm only trusting in God. And I will stay on that road and persevere. Why? Because He is faithful to keep me. It's not me. It's God that has me. You think about the person that's hanging off a cliff. And you're hanging on to God and God's hanging on to you. And you go, I can't hold on anymore. And God says, don't worry about it. I can. I've got you. It's that perseverance and, and keeping that focus on that. And it's important to understand, he says, growing more and more. Because faith should be a growing faith. It's a progressive faith. It's not something that just is a one and done. I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, therefore I have faith. And it's a complete faith. No. It's a growing faith. 
But how has that faith grown? There's an old saying, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be tested. In other words, you say, you can't test my faith. I don't want my faith tested. Well, you, you can't trust in that. It needs to stand the test and pass the test. The other thing that was growing was love. Love for one another. If faith is our vertical measurement of our relationship with God, then love is the connected horizontal measurement of our relationship with God and how we love one another. Because I can tell you this, sometimes it takes an awful lot of faith to love people. Especially the unlovable ones. You know, try hugging a porcupine. It takes a lot of faith to do that. You've got to look at how you love one another. And Paul says your love is growing. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Paul was praising the church and praising God for answer to prayer. And you think about, what was this prayer? In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, it says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So in the first letter, he's praying, I am praying that your love will increase. In the second letter, he says, I am praising God. Why? Your love has increased. It's answered prayer that we see within this. Paul prays for an increase in love, and now he sees it being demonstrated one to another. And so he commends them on this faith and love and this spiritual growth. So much so, he's bragging on them. He's bragging on them. That's got to be a really cool thing to have the Apostle Paul brag on you. Everybody, look at, look at my church in Thessalonians. Look at how they're loving people. And look at how they're persevering and, and hardship and, and all of this. And he, he would even brag on the, the churches of Macedonia and the giving to Jerusalem, to the church of Corinth while he was there. Bragging on them. Say, have you seen this church? Bragging. That's a good thing within this. Does God brag on you? I hope so. Is your faith growing? Is your love for one another growing? If it is, then God's bragging on you. In my, in my sanctified imagination, I would love to, to be able to hear God say to Gabriel, Hey, Gabriel, look at Carrie. Look at what he's doing. Right? That would be encouraging to me. Paul's encouraging says, I'm bragging on you within this. And within these, these trials. It's interesting, the, the word used for persecution is a word that specifically speaks to religious persecution. It wasn't. So many times we think persecution is like, okay, you know, I'm being persecuted because I got a cold. I'm persecuted because I stubbed my toe. No, no. This means that it was a religious persecution. They were following Christ and they were being persecuted because they were Christians within this. The other side that he wanted them to understand is that God is just. We read where he says, and God is just and God will repay. Now, I grew up in East Los Angeles. I grew up in a neighborhood and a lifestyle that said, if you hit me, I will hit you back twice as hard. If you hurt me, I will hurt you back more. I will make it to where you don't want to hurt me anymore. And that's how I grew up. And within this, it was, it was my retribution. And God has to change that, and He did change that. And so now it's not my retribution, it's divine retribution. Paul is saying to this church, you don't have to get even with these people that are religiously persecuting you. I'll do that. I'll take care of it. 
Well, if you think about it, that takes all the pressure off of me. I don't have to defend myself. I can just stand behind God. I can say, God, you get them. God, you deal with it. And I can tell you this. God can deal with the unjust and the ungodly way better than I can. He can deal with them accordingly. So instead of entering into sin and bitterness and all these other things of trying to get even, I just need to let go and let God do it and deal with this. So if I can trust in God for my salvation, I can trust that God's going to reward the faithful and God's going to, I can trust that God's going to punish the wicked. Is God going to punish the wicked? Yes. Has He punished the wicked in the past? Yes. Will He punish the wicked in the future? Yes. And I, I, I can trust in that. The reward for faithfulness is to be worthy of the kingdom of God. You know, there's only two classes of people. Those that enter the kingdom of God because they're worthy. Not by what they did, but because of what Jesus did. Don't be mistaken. It's not like you earned your way in. Jesus did it for you. It's your faith in the finished work of Jesus that gives you access to the kingdom of God. But the ungodly, the unrighteous, have rejected Jesus. Therefore, they will never enter that kingdom. So you're either in the kingdom or you're out. One of two places. And so God will deal with them. But in the suffering, it provides this, this platform of an evaluation of faith. And this quality of faith, this crucible of trials. And God is just and will deal with them. In Romans chapter 12, 19, it says, Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave, note, and I love this passage, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In my mind, it, 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 it's like, okay, you're toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with your enemy, and you're like ready to fight. And you're ready to go at it. And it says, leave room. In other words, step back, duck, let God take the swing. Leave room for it. And just step back. You know, I mean, what would it be like if your enemies come after you and you say, you know what, I'm not going to deal with you. Let the Lord deal with you. How does, it, how does an ungodly person deal with that? What? Let the wrath of God fall upon you. May God give you warts and all that. You know, I, we, we understand our reward is to be counted worthy. Why? Because we've been sanctified, because we've been purified, because we've been chosen, we've been given life, we've been given this, this blessing. We've been given peace, and we've been given rest. When you think about being given this relief from trouble, when is relief from trouble really going to happen for us? When we leave this place. When is relief from trouble going to be given to the unbeliever? Never. Never. That's scary. When you think about it. Terrifying. To the unbeliever, this is the most heaven they're ever going to experience. To the believer, this is the most hell you'll ever experience. And, and to be absent from this body and present with the Lord is when that relief comes. That rest To the unbeliever, Jesus returns, as the text says, He's going to return with His fiery angels. The flaming fire, verse 7. He says, to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, 
And when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and, fly, and flaming fire, dealing out, note, retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey God. Within this, this, this retribution from these fiery angels, Isaiah 66, verses 15 to 16 says this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire, and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. How many times is the word fire used? Not pleasant. It's this fiery judgment that is, that is within this. It's a wrath. And those that receive this wrath are specifically described as, note, those who do not know God and do not obey His gospel. Well, what does that mean? That means those that do know God and do obey His gospel will not receive fiery judgment at the second coming, which means, church, you will not be there. You're not. Within this, it's a blazing punishment that, that Jesus is bringing back specifically to the rebellious. And note, he says in verse 9, these will pay the penalty of what? Eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. So who gets eternal destruction? Those that reject God, those that rebel against Him, they get eternal destruction. But the believer gets the reward of entering into heaven. That should bring peace. That should bring peace. Well, you say, well, what happens if it's me? Well, it's not if you believe in Jesus. If you put your faith and trust in Him. As Lord and Savior, that He paid that penalty for your sin. And if you have done that, this doesn't apply to you. He's very clear within this. It should be great encouragement. And, and there is a clear contrast in this first chapter of Thessalonians of those that are, are rewarded with the kingdom of God versus those that are rewarded with eternal destruction. Jesus would mention this in, in Matthew chapter 25, 41. It says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I, I think it's ironic. I can't be thinking about this. You spend your whole life choosing to be an atheist or an agnostic or to reject God or whatever you want to call it. I don't want to believe in a God. I don't want anything to do with this God. I don't want anything to do with your God. I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to do whatever I want. And I'm going to live my life. And I don't want to believe in that God. And while they're living, God's saying, no, I want to give to you eternal life. I don't want it. I want to give you hope. I don't want it. And it comes to the end of life and God says, okay, you're going to get what you asked for. You don't want to be around me. You don't want to, you don't want to be in relationship with me. You don't want to receive my blessing. Fine. You're going to get what you asked for. You're going to be away from me for all eternity. Now, I bet you didn't think that one through, did you? We think about this. 
this this punishment is really all their life they're rejecting God and in the end God rejects them and it'll be too late within them they'll be punished in Jesus' second advent Revelation 19 says this in that day of the Lord Revelation 19 when the church returns with Christ where Jesus comes in his second advent, Revelation 19, 11, and 12, says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness. Note, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of what? Fire. And his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Verses 14 to 15. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on horses. Who is that? Us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of fierce wrath of God the Almighty. The final judgment. This judgment that comes in. You don't want to be around? Okay, fine. And Jesus sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. And rules and reigns. Satan is released for a short period of time to try to test and then he's defeated, cast out. And then there's a white throne judgment. A judgment of final separation. Where everything is destroyed, new heaven and new earth is established. Paul says, don't worry. Jesus will deal with it. We don't have to fight. We don't have to battle. So he prays in verses 11-12. To this end, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith and power so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified where? In you. And you in Him. According to the grace of our God. Why? Because as Christ is glorified in you, you are glorified in Christ in this mutual relationship. Why? Because as a believer, you are placed in Christ. Never to be separated within that. That is huge. We've got to understand this. So he prays for them that they would be glorified within this. And the glorification, it's important to understand, the glorification is the finished work of Jesus. Romans eight twenty nine to 30 says this, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's your sanctification. So that he would be the firstborn of many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. That glorification is a complete transformed work. You're not there yet, neither am I. So you can tell everybody, hey, you know what? I'm still a work in progress. I'm still a work in progress. He's, he's taking the chips off. He's, he's molding me and shaping me into, into the image of Jesus. And I got some chunks that left, need to go away. But I'm, at, I'm being worked on. So hang in there during these times of suffering. Hang in there during these times of difficulty. Why? Because every trial and every difficulty you go through reveals an area in your life that God wants to remove and, and, and eliminate and, and challenge and work through and all of these things. So you're conformed into the image of Christ so that you'll understand more of God's grace, more of God's love, more of God's compassion in your life. 
So instead of running away from the trials, embrace them. Say, God, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to teach me? Instead of being fearful, be joyful knowing that, that God is doing that work and grow. Now we come to chapter 2 where Paul changes in this letter, and it's a short letter, but we see this word now. So whenever you see this word now, or in chapter 3, finally, it's Paul as he's writing this letter. Remember, chapter numbers and letters are not, they're not in the original letter. So you've got to read this as a continual thing. It says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we request you, brethren. So see, he flows that in. And so within this, he, he is giving this request. He says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Now, as you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and will bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan and all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deceptions of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them, the people spoken of above, a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us, has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts with every good work and word. Every good work and word. Why? Because they were being shaken by false teachers. False teachers had crept into the church and was corrupting the church. He says, now we request, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord. Now we have this topic. The coming of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The question. 
when is the day of the Lord going to come? What is the events that's going to happen? Has it already begun? How are we going to recognize the day of the Lord? These were all questions that had come back to Paul that he needs to deal with within this. Because the church was still very concerned and fearful based on the suffering, based on the, the, the current conditions within this. And Paul states, note, that you may not be quickly shaken from your mind, or literally, that you will not lose your mind over this. What was happening? They were losing their mind over it. They were freaking out. Because they, they thought and they were being told by false teachers that the day of the Lord had come. There was all this false stuff that was coming around. And they're like, well, well, we're hearing this and we're hearing that and we're hearing this and we're hearing that and all of these different things. And Paul says, time out. Stop. Stop. You're losing your mind. Within this, their, the, their fixation with this day of the Lord and the fear of the day of the Lord had come to a place where it was just rattling them. Now, it's important to understand the words that Paul uses because they're very, very important within this. He says in verse 1, We request, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him that you not lose your mind. Two different events. Now, there are some Bible commentators that will bring these two events together. Lord bless them. I don't see it that way. I see that as two separate events that are within there. Why? Because in this first letter, he separated those two, those two events. They are separate events within this. And so the topics that Paul is dealing with is coming off of the first letter of Thessalonians and whatever teaching that Paul had already given them about the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord that was there. And so as he is saying this, this is, this is about the coming of the day of the Lord and our being gathered together with Him. And so he, he addresses them in the same manner, the gathering or the rapture and then the judgment. But they were only focused on the day of the Lord because they see this judgment within this. Now, there's a rather long passage that I want to read to you and, and look at. So if you would, with your Bibles, turn over to Mark chapter 13. It, it, it is, it's too long to put up on the screen. It's a lot of verses that are in there. But I want, to, I want to share with you these verses that come from Jesus here in Mark chapter 13, verses 4 to 19 within this. In Mark 13, verses 4 to 19, Jesus is dealing with the things to come. It says this, where the disciples say to them, and they're on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking across the Mount of Olives. And he says, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of all these things to be fulfilled? And Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple and, and such. And he says this, verse 5. See to it that no one misleads you. Now pause there. Why were the Thessalonians losing their mind? Because somebody was misleading them. So Jesus says, see to it that no one misleads you. Paul's saying, these guys have come in and they're misleading you. Notice, verse 6, Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. 
Now, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Don't lose your mind. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will also be famines, and these things are merely what? The beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before the governments and the kings for my sake and the testimony of them. Meaning what? You're going to experience suffering. The gospel, note, must first be preached to all ethnos. In other words, the gospel must be expanded within us. Verse 11. And when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say or whatever is given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speaks, but it's the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. Father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Now, I know that doesn't happen in our world today, but... You will be hated by all, note, because of my name, but the one who endures, there's perseverance to the end, he will be what? Saved. Because of his perseverance and white-knuckling through it? No, because his faith is genuine. His faith is genuine. But, verse 14... And this is key. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, parenthetical statement, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in and get anything out of the house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies, and to those days, but pray that it may not happen in winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days or put a limit, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom God has chosen, he shortens those days. And that's a different study in itself. Within this, and when if anyone says, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Jesus taught it, Paul taught it. Now he's reteaching it again. False teachers are going to come in and they're going to lead people astray because they're going to teach lies about eschatology and it lies about the, the coming of Christ. For a number of different reasons, but most importantly, to get your eyes off of Jesus. The rapture is not the center of Paul's argument in chapter 2. It's not the center of the argument. It's this man of lawlessness. It's a marked sign. Here are some events, three specific events that you should be able to watch. And you should be able to see. They're marked events that are in there. And so, as the church believed their current suffering was the beginning of the period of tribulation, they believed that it was the beginning of the day of the Lord and it wasn't there. They were suffering for the name of Jesus, but... 
since the time of Jesus' coming, hasn't the church been suffering in the name of Jesus? Since that beginning of time. So, so that isn't necessarily a marker. It's just the beginning of the birth pains. And, and we're going to suffer in this ungodly world. Notice again in Mark 13, 7, it says, When you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be afraid. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Russia and the Ukraine. China. All these other things. These are all wars, but it's not the end. But it's going to get worse. But I don't need to worry about that. I need to keep my eyes focused and not be deceived. He says in verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless... First thing. Apostasy come. He says, apostasy will come first. Now, that word apostasy is an interesting word as, as we see it of, of this. Apostasy will take place first. Then the restrainer of the lawless one has to be taken out of the way. Then the lawless one is revealed and takes his seat in the temple within this. That is the order that Paul gives out in this thing. But he says it's not going to come, which is not necessarily... In the original text, but it's implied in the original text that Paul says there. This word apostasy, apostasy and it's epistomai, literally means rebellion, defiance. It's not a falling away from faith. It's a defiance against faith. It's rebellions against God. The apostasy or the or the Global rebellion against God will take place. Now, question. Are we seeing that today? Is it increasing? Yes. Is it a mark sign that we're getting closer to the end of days? The answer is yes. All the way across the board. Yes. It's not necessarily a falling away from faith. It's the rebellion against faith. The word is defined that way within this. And so we, we apply the word apostasy because when a person says they're a Christian but they rebel against their faith, they're really just rebelling against God. Not saved to begin with and then they fall away. Or they're rebelling against. And that's how that word is used within this. And so we have a cultural and a word world that is defiant against God. Rebelling against God on every standpoint within that. And that really is that mystery of lawless one this this lawless one that is here that's infecting the society within this in first timothy 4 1 through 5 it says this but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from their faith paying attention to deceitful spirits doctrines of demons and by means of hypocrisy of liars seared their own conscience as with a branding iron men who forbid in marriage does that happen today Advocate for abstaining from certain foods, which God has created to be grateful, shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with gratitude, thank you, God, for my filet mignon and carne asada. And everything is sanctified by word of prayer. In other words, I'm going to pray over my pork chops and I'm going to eat them. Thank you very much. I'm okay with that. 
But understand this idea of this legalism doesn't, doesn't fly either. Paul's addressing the culture to Timothy, his son in the faith. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 says this, But realize that this is the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be, note, lovers of self. Does that happen? Lovers of money. Boastful. Arrogant. Revilers. Disobedient to parents. I know that's not yet happening, but... Ungrateful. Unholy. Unloving. Irreconcilable. Malicious gossips. Without self-control. Brutal. Haters of good. Treacherous. Reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to, note, a form of godliness, although they have denied His power. Question, church. Are we in the last days? But Paul wrote this to Timothy. If Paul wrote this to Timothy and he sees that in his time, what would Paul write to the Church of Warren Community Fellowship today? Can you imagine what that letter would look like? You think about this. And, and, and so within this, we see this rebellion against God as a growing malignant element throughout the world. And there's high points and low points, but it is an ongoing condition. That is going to be the general condition that's going to happen until the next event. What is the next event? The removal of the one that restrains the lawless one. Now, what does that say? It says that as lawless as things are right now, and they're bad, it's restrained. By whom? Because there is one that is restraining this lawless one from having free reign to run amok throughout the world. Who is that? It would be the Holy Spirit. And where is the Holy Spirit resident? Within the believers and within the church. It's interesting to me that Paul would say that the one that is the slawless one is destined to destruction, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, empowered by the devil, is restrained. And the son of destruction will not only oppose worship, but seek to be worshipped as God. Well, isn't that what Satan originally wanted to do? That was, part of, that was his fall within this. And so within this, this Antichrist is going to be worshipped and want to be worshipped above all gods. Daniel speaks of him in this. Daniel chapter 11, 36 to 37. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify, magnify himself above every God, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. There's the wrath and the tribulation. For that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above all. There's a lot of speculation, and that could be a study in itself. Who might this Antichrist be? But if you read Daniel's definition, there's some sincere sincere markers of of who this is. We'll have no regard for the God of his fathers. 
and will have no regard or desire for women, which is an interesting statement. And no regard for any other guards, but magnify himself above all. Satan's desire wanted to be acknowledged as God. Daniel 9.27 says this, speaking of the abomination that makes desolate, and he will make firm a covenant with many for one week. One week, seven years, seven days, seven. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of the abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The abomination takes place when? The tribulation period is a seven-week period. For three and a half years, everything is going okay. It's going good. Peace and safety. Halfway through, the Antichrist, who is negotiating this peace, he appears to be this man of peace, will go into the temple and take his place and declare himself as being God. You say, well, Carrie, that's kind of weird. No, because it's happened before. There have been previous events in the intertestamental period, Antiochus Epiphanes, he placed this altar to Zeus in the sanctuary, made the priests drink pig's blood. And a few years before the writing of this, Gaius Caesar, or Caligula, declared that he was God and attempted to have his image set up in the Holy of Holies. It's interesting that Satan has been trying to get that seat for a long time. And those were just warm-ups for this Antichrist that is going to take this place. So what do we know? We know that there is going to be a general rebellion for a period of time, that there is a restrainer that is keeping this lawless one from taking his position. But when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit that is in the church, is taken out of the way, then the Antichrist is going to have full reign to do whatever he wants to do. Well, again, what or who is holding him back is interesting There are two things in there. The first is in neuter. That which restrains. It's in a neuter position. So it means that it is an it or or an event, something. Then a pronoun is used, meaning it's a person. You say, well, what is it? It's the plan of God. The sovereign divine plan of God is restraining the Antichrist from taking his position and the Holy Spirit that's present within the church. In other words, he, he has to follow God's timeline within this. So therefore, the church must be taken out. And taken out before the last three and a half years. I believe it's before the seven years before he's even there. Why? Because here, he says, the mystery of lawlessness is already prevalent. So we know that the apostasy... Is, is taking place. This mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Mysterion, literally meaning once was the thing that was once hidden is now being revealed within this. So this mystery is there. That this lawlessness is taking place and we see it in our world today. Everything that is about this guy, this lawlessness is, is basically desensitizing the world for this guy's presence. One who is a lover of himself, that doesn't love women, that defies and rejects the God of his fathers and all of this thing. Well, we see this as being cultural norms. All being removed. Why? So that this guy can come in and negotiate a plan of peace. And then three and a half years in, he's going to hold this position. 
John would say this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that we're in the last hour. It's all closing in within this. So should you freak out? No. Don't freak out. Why? Because when you need to go, God will take you out. You don't have to worry about it. It's not, it's not the end of the world because God's going to take you out before that. But this Antichrist is going to come with the power of Satan to deceive and perform miracles and signs and fake wonders and all these things to deceive who? You've got to pay attention to the words. To deceive who? The elect? No. The unbeliever. The unbeliever. Now you say, well, what about the elect that we read in, in Mark's account? That's going to be the 144,000 that are sealed that will make it through the tribulation. And it's going to be so bad that it's going to seem like they're going to want to believe, but they won't. We understand that th this audience, that this Antichrist is playing to, is the unsaved, the unregenerated. Why? Because he wants to build an army against Jesus when he comes back. Because in his thinking, he can win. He's going to lose. His time is limited. And Paul says when Jesus returns, he will be destroyed. And we know in, in Revelation 19, when he comes back, he will destroy the Antichrist. And Satan will be bound in the center of the earth. Revelation 19.11 And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True and Righteous, and he judges and wages war from his mouth a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and tread the winepress and the fierce wrath within this. And we see that, that within this, he says, I'm going to take care of this. For this reason, verses 11 and 12, God will send upon them a deluding influence within this. Do you remember the account with Pharaoh with Egypt? And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it starts saying, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God's going to give them this delusion say, this is what you want, this is what you're going to get within this. God's going to get us for this reason. These unbelievers mentioned above, they refuse to believe and they are actively rejecting God. And so God sends this delusion you're going to reject the truth? Okay, you're going to reject the truth within this. Why? Because that's the way, what they chose. Romans chapter 1, verse 25 says this, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. You get what you get, because you chose that within this. So the, what does he say? Verses 13 to 15, stand firm and don't be moved. Stand firm, don't be moved. The beloved in the Lord, do not be moved. Why? Because you're loved by God. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God did not destine us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. God has not destined or determined you to receive the wrath, but to obtain salvation. You were chosen to be saved. You're not chosen to maybe be saved. You're not chosen to, well, I'll save you now, but, you know, if you really don't like it, then you can go. No. God's got you. 
Because your faith has been tried and it's true within this. So stand firm on the foundation of your faith. And so in this conclusion, stand firm. And then Paul prays for the church to comfort and strengthen your hearts with every good work. Lastly, verses 1-18. through 18, He says this, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from the perverse evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So He prays for them and encourages them. And then He deals with one last issue of laziness. Because of the false deceivers, he says, Now we commend you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who is leading an unruly, literally undisciplined life, and not according to the tradition or the teachings which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our examples, because we didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the right to do this, but in order for ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in well-doing of good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in the letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with them so that, notice, so that, they will be put to shame. Why? Because you're not associating with them. It's church discipline. Yet do not regard him as an enemy. Why? Because you're going to admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. And I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is the distinguishing mark in every letter to this day that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So what does he say in these last things? I'm praying for you. I'm praying to encourage you. Oh, and by the way, the people that are lazy among you, that are saying the Lord's going to come back in any day, so I'm not going to go to work. Why go to work? Jesus is going to come back any day. We're just going to hang around, drink coffee, and read the Bible. Oh, and by the way, can you pay my rent for me? We're just going to hang around. We're going to talk about the Lord all day. Because He's coming back at any time. Oh, by the way, can you pay my house rent? Can you, can you, can you buy me food? Or can you do all these things? And Paul says, No. We worked and supported ourselves to be an example to show you that you need to work and support yourself. So, for the lazy people, if they don't work, they don't eat. If they're truly lazy, avoid them. Why? So when nobody is talking to them, and they're going, well, why doesn't they want to talk to me anymore? Because you become annoying because you're begging all the time. Oh, what should I do? Get a job. Pay for yourself. Work hard until the Lord comes back. 
within this. Admonish him as a brother. As a brother. To correct them within this. And share them, share the gospel with them. We've got to understand that God has called us to a place of peace. We need to avoid these other things. And he closes this letter with Colossians 3.15. I want to read it to you and then we'll close in prayer. Team can come up. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the body. And be thankful. Be thankful. Don't get wigged out by the circumstances or the suffering or the things that are going on. Stay focused. Keep in the faith. Love one another. And when Jesus calls you home, you're ready to go. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for tonight. I thank you that we could be in this place. Lord, there's there's a lot that we studied and a lot we looked at. And there's so much more in these passages. Holy Spirit, may you bring to, to light the truth in our understanding is as we continue to grow in that faith and knowledge of you. And as the world spins out of control, it really is in control. It, it, it's under your control. And as wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all these bad things are happening and it seems like it's chaos, it's not. You got it. And as we worry about entering into this, this time and our next generation of kids having to grow up in this, this world, we shouldn't worry. You got them too. So may we walk in the faith and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand and we'll close.
said, Amen. Praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.